I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This week, a simple eye drop could replace surgery for cataracts. So I would have anticipated that we will be going to clinical trials for treating human cataracts within next year and the rice strain that could feed more people and cut emissions. Until now, nobody uh, actually achieved in manipulating rice plants to actually do that. Plus the twists and turns of RNA and their effects on our bodies. This is The Nature Podcast for July the 23rd, 2015. I'm Adam Levy. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. First this week, a clear view of a new treatment for a common eye condition. Jeff Marsh has been looking into the story with a little help from his grandma. Cataracts cause over half of all cases of blindness across the globe. There's like a mist over your eye, so you're not clearly seeing things. That's my granny, 93 and going strong. And whilst never one to complain, she did recently develop a cataract. I didn't know I had a cataract till I went for an eye test. I was having to get stronger glasses and she said, you've got cataracts. For people like Granny Marsh, who are usually in their old age, there's only one treatment for this cloudy vision. You have to have surgery to cut out the misty lens. What they do is give you an injection in the eye and look into it with all sorts of, you know, spyglass things. And, and you get all sorts of visions going on in your eye and lights flashing and doing all sorts. And then they lift off this film, I presume. I don't quite know what a cataract is myself. Well, she's not so hot on the details, but then she is in her 90s. What the surgeon actually did was remove the lens and replace it with a plastic version. It's not a major operation, but there can be complications just like any surgery. And you only get the surgery in a developed nation with access to this treatment. Millions don't. So maybe there's an easier way. Enter Kang Zhang from the University of California, San Diego. He's been thinking, wouldn't it be great if we could replace the surgical knife with something that could just dissolve the cloudy stuff, like an eye drop? Well, we'll get to that punchline soon enough. But before you can cure a cloudy lens, you've got to understand what makes a healthy one see-through. Here's Kang Zhang to explain. The lens proteins are large protein complexes, and those are arranged in a very orderly structure such that the light can come through straight. Obviously, if you have any changes of this highly ordered lens protein structures, you're going to have cloudy lens, therefore cataract. Kang, as well as being a researcher, is also a physician. And recently, two young children walked into his clinic with congenital cataracts. 
being a geneticist, Kang dived straight into sequencing their genomes and found a mutation blocking the making of a molecule called lanesterol. Before this study, Kang says there was very little known about the role lanesterol plays in the eye. In a new paper, he and his team took cells in a dish and tweaked them so that they couldn't produce lanesterol. In these cells, the lens proteins became misfolded and formed aggregates, just like in cataracts. And conversely, by reintroducing lanesterol or lanesterol synthase into the cells, we show that uh, in the cell cultural models, there are dramatic dissolution of misfolded lens proteins. So our study is the first one to show that uh, lanesterol and uh, their related compound may be a new class of drugs that is involving dissolving protein aggregations and then treating misfolded protein complexes, restoring uh, lens clarity and and, uh, preventing cataract formation. And they didn't just stop at cell cultures. Kang and his team wondered what would happen if they gave old dogs eye drops with lanesterol in them. Pooches, like us, are susceptible to cataracts. In addition, we also take um, dogs with a a senile or age-related cataract and uh, treated them with lanesterol. We were shown that uh, in those cases, uh, there were also increased clarity and the reduction of cataracts in those dogs. So how long will our grandparents have to wait before cataracts can be cured with eye drops? Kang thinks not too long. Well, since the lanesterol is a molecule that is produced by ourselves, by our own body, the toxicity issue of a drug is going to be minimal, if any. So I would anticipate that we will be going to clinical trials for treating human cataracts within next year. And there's one more radical claim for lanesterol. Because it works by sorting out disordered clumps of proteins, I wondered if it might be used to treat other disorders where protein aggregates cause issues. We think so, and uh, we are now doing experiments and try to demonstrate or test whether they're going to be effective for dissolving aggregations such as Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. For some people, though, lanesterol will hit the market a fraction too late. I told Granny Marsh about the new results. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, I wish I'd known about it, put it that way, yes. But, you know, this is progress, isn't it? I think science is is a very wonderful, slow progress because they have to be absolutely sure. That report from Jeff Marsh with his grandmother, as well as geneticist Kang Zhang. Find the paper and a News & Views analysis article at nature.com forward slash nature. Follow our friends, the News & Views team on Twitter too, at NatureNV. If we're going to slash greenhouse gas emissions, we're going to have to change a lot of things. How we generate power, operate transport, and, of course, how we grow rice. Rice? What does rice have to do with climate change? Well, rice is responsible for 15% of global methane emissions, and methane is a particularly potent greenhouse gas. Methane is released when rice's roots decay in the absence of oxygen. Oh no, so does that mean we should all stop eating rice? Well, that's not really an option. Rice is a staple food for half the world's population, and demand is set to increase as global population continues to rise. Up till now, people have been trying to adapt farming techniques so that less methane is produced. But maybe the rice itself could be adapted. 
Now researchers have done exactly that, with the added benefit that the plants produce more, starchier grains of rice. I asked Paul Baudelie of the Netherlands Institute of Ecology about the idea behind this new strain of rice. It was already, I think, 2002 that, that people uh, found out that when the rice uh, carries less grains and more methane was emitted. So they came up already with the idea to manipulate the amount of carbon invested in grains of rice. But until now, nobody uh, actually achieved in manipulating rice plants to actually do that. So the idea is that by getting a rice plant to put more work into growing grains of rice, it's putting less work into the roots, and so there's less carbon there to be turned into methane. What, what did the authors of this current study do to see if more rice does lead to less methane? They transplanted uh, a gene of barley into rice, which um, controls uh, the sugar signaling in the plant. So when, when sugar is uh, produced, or by photosynthesis, these genes are turned on much more than it would be normally in seeds and in stems. And that means that these photosynthesates go into the seeds and into the stems. And what were the results of this manipulation? They checked you know, whether all the genes they would expect it to be expressed, whether this was the case. There should be more uh, starch in the seeds. That was the case. They even got uh, higher grain yields. Uh, they got lower root biomass. They, they really managed to, uh, to measure the emissions in, uh, in, two, in, in field as well as um, uh, greenhouse trials. So they did quite an, uh, a very nice multidisciplinary study assessing what they were planning to do so that in principle it works. So how, how big were the increases in yield of the plant and re reductions in methane? You know, if it seems like it was only a reduction of 1% or something, it would seem hardly worth it. So they can actually show quite a dramatic reduction in, uh, in methane emission. So only 10% of the normal emission was left, so that would be a reduction of 90%. But uh, they don't have a, a very high resolution time series. So to be able to compare the reductions they found uh, with other mitigation, they have to do quite some, uh, some more extensive analysis. This sounds, though, like it has the potential to be a pretty huge win-win to be able to produce more rice with less emissions of methane. It's rare that we find a way of feeding more people while actually lowering our impact on the climate. So what are the next steps for making sure that this really is as good as it sounds. They have now sort of indirect proof, so less methane is coming out, they have lower abundance of these uh, methane-producing microbes, but whether the plant actually puts less carbon into the soil, there is no direct proof for that, so they still have to measure this, as well as the uh, uh, effects on all kinds of other microbes. Carbon is the big driving force of all microbial processes in the soil, so to get a, a complete assessment of, um, let's say, the benefits of the system, I, I would say they have to do some, uh, some more field trials and, uh, and actually try to measure whether there is less carbon going into the soil. So I think they, they have to start doing new field trials and they have to get really to the mechanisms uh, and prove the mechanisms uh, of um, uh, reduction of putting carbon into the system. Even if the benefits of this new strain of rice are established, there are, of course, other obstacles that it would have to overcome. GM foods have always been controversial, and China, which is both the biggest producer and consumer of rice, has actually banned the sale of genetically modified rice. Are people wary of new strains of rice? At the moment, something has changed to, to the traditional uh, cultivation 
then people get a little bit hesitative. Uh, so, for instance, you know, Japanese people they only they only eat Japanese cultured rice, no foreign rice. Uh, you have also the discussion between uh, growing rice under flooded conditions or growing rice under dry conditions, which is also possible. Also there, there is of course a potential barrier for using these uh, these varieties um, for human consumption, and then it's not the issue that it's genetically modified, but it's the issue that it's simply deviating from the traditional cultivation. If all went well with this rice and the benefits did seem to be as great as they could be from these preliminary results, how long do you think it could be until people started actually eating this and it started being sold to people in various communities? Well, that's a difficult, also a tough question, but I think the kind of the kind of experiments they still have to do, you will be able to do that in three to five years uh, to get really good mechanistic understanding of, uh, of what is going on in terms of uh, of your soil processes, and then let's say going to the to the to the market that really would depend on how will the the legislation develop, especially in the in the Asian countries. On the other hand. Uh, it will also be a matter of how urgent will the food problem be, and I think then things might go much faster. That was Paul Baudely of the Netherlands Institute of Ecology. To find out more about this strain of rice, check out the research paper or Paul's News and Views. Both are at nature.com forward slash nature. Coming up, we have the news chat, don't we always? And we're going back to basics to find out how much we don't know about RNA, the go-between of the DNA code and the proteins it churns out. First, though, it's the Research Highlights with Kerry Smith. Human hands are pretty skillful. They help us play Beethoven. In our past, they helped us make stone tools. But the other apes don't do these things. They mostly use their hands for swinging through trees or walking on four limbs. So people assumed that human hands evolved to help us perform all our specialised tasks. Not necessarily, according to a new study comparing primate fossil hands with living ape and human hands. Many of our ancestors had hands that already looked a lot like ours, even though they didn't necessarily have handy skills like us. Human hands may not be as special as we thought. The paper is in Nature Communications. A team of chemists has finally spotted a molecule that was first predicted to exist over a century ago. The molecule, called ethylene dione, is deceptively simple. Two carbon monoxide molecules bonded together with the formula OCCO. But it's very unstable and splits into its two components very easily. So an Arizona-based team took the stable ion version, OCCO- and stripped an electron from it, making it OCCO. It lasted for half a nanosecond, just long enough for the scientists to catch a glimpse of it. Since its component parts are so common in the atmosphere, ethylene dione could be playing a role in climate chemistry unrecognised until now. The paper is in Anguanta Chemie. Everyone knows how important DNA is in making proteins and determining the activities of every cell in our body. You may also remember that DNA gets turned into RNA in our cells first, before that then gets turned into protein. So RNA is a kind of middleman ferrying information between the molecules that actually matter. Or at least that's what most of us were taught. It turns out RNA is doing a lot more for us than we might think. In a news feature this week, reporter Ailey Dolgan explores how the structure of RNA enables this one simple molecule to achieve some surprising things. 
I gave Ailey a ring to find out how our understanding of RNA structure is taking shape. So Ailey, RNA is a molecule, it's very similar to DNA, it's a long chain of nucleic acids that carry information. Yeah, that's right. RNA, just like DNA, is made up of nucleotides. And the traditional view of RNA was that it was mostly just a conveyor of genetic information. It took recipes from DNA and helped turn those into proteins. And seen in this way, what seemed to matter about RNA was just its code. Uh, But it turns out that the structure of RNA, the actual 3D shape, carries a lot of meaning as well. Well, I know what DNA looks like. It's got the the classic double helix shape. But what about RNA? In textbooks, it's usually just drawn as a squiggly line. Is that wrong? (laughs) Uh, The short answer is, well, yes. (laughs) But it kind of depends on when your textbook was written. Uh, If we go back into the history of molecular biology, scientists have known for some time uh, about the structure of a select few highly structured RNAs. Um, For example, take transfer RNAs. Transfer RNAs have this distinct kind of cloverleaf shape, but in the world of RNA, uh, this is kind of an outlier. In effect, RNAs with such a distinct structure were the exception, not the rule. Or at least that's how it was thought. Uh, Okay, so maybe they're not squiggly lines. What what do they look like? Well, (laughs) that's a tough question because all the RNAs are kind of different. The molecules get made from DNA as kind of a squiggly line, but that only exists for an instant. Pretty quickly, they get folded back on themselves and complementary nucleotides in the RNA strand will start to bind to each other. And thanks to this binding, you can get all sorts of elaborate structures, uh, things like hairpins or bulges, loops, knots, hammerheads, all sorts of kind of crazy shapes and structures. There's all this interestingly shaped RNA floating around in our cells, quite, quite a lot by the sound of it, but how do we know it's actually doing anything important? Well, so that's kind of the big question in the field right now. Um, But these studies that have begun to look at the structure simultaneously of thousands of RNAs all at once, they're beginning to show that there are some rules, some actual universal rules that seem to dictate how the structure of RNA can govern function. And that suggests that that the structure is really important. Um, And this is a big deal. Um, I spoke with one RNA scientist named Alain Lederach from the University of North Carolina, and here's how he put it. There's probably a lot more important structural regulatory features in the RNA in the cell. And so that's really profound because um, we had never really thought that so much of the regulatory program of the cell could be encoded in something as complex as the structure of RNA. And what did he mean when he's a regulatory program? Well, he's talking about all the many functions of the cell and what's regulating them. Uh, For example, the genes and the DNA code for the different proteins, but we need a whole lot of checks and balances to make sure that the right genes are activated at the right times and and that the right amounts of protein are being made. So as well as the protein-coding genes, which are obviously really important, there's RNA as well, which might actually be affecting how our cells work or even what we look like. It could be. They could have all sorts of subtle effects on gene expression, and that could underpin many subtle traits like height or or response to drugs, say. And now researchers have begun to to document some of these structure-altering variants that are actually responsible for disease. Um, This is the expertise of Alan Lederach, the UNC biologist who I mentioned before. He studied these structure-altering mutations uh, in an RNA linked to a type of eye cancer called retinoblastoma. In healthy individuals, this RNA is very dynamic. It normally flips between three different structures, and those three structures are essential for normal function. 
But in cancer patients with the mutation, that's not the case. Here, I'll let Alan Lederach explain. It turns out that in the family of individuals with these mutations in this region, we showed that these three conformations collapse into a single conformation, and that this single conformation changes gene expression. And that's the mechanism by which you could cause disease in these individuals. And this is like a whole new layer of gene regulation, this RNA structure. Um, Our bodies and appearance and our health, they aren't just defined by which genes are being turned on and off, but actually by whether the RNA messenger is in its active state. And here, structure seems to be the main determinant. And what could this new understanding of RNA then lead on to? Are there actually obvious applications? Well, firstly, there's a lot of basic biology to explore. And by unraveling the structural code, who knows where that information could lead us? Um, But to your question, yes, scientists are already thinking ahead to all sorts of applications. Uh, Take the retinoblastoma RNA that Alan Lederach mentioned. He he said perhaps, you know, scientists could develop a drug that could alter the structure of the RNA and make it go back to its proper three conformations. So if RNA structure is as important as everyone is now starting to think it is, this could really radically open up new directions in both medicine and biotechnology. Ailey Dolgan there, a reporter based in Boston. We also heard from Alain Lederach of the University of North Carolina. Ailey's feature, including more of Alain's work, is in Nature this week. Ailey is also currently hosting Nature's monthly neuroscience podcast, Neuropod. Check that out at nature.com forward slash neurosci forward slash neuropod. Time now for our weekly news chat and Davide Castelvecchi joins us in the studio. Hi, Davide. Hello. So the first piece of news I'd like to talk to you about today is a French teenager who came off antiretroviral drugs for HIV. Yes, it's, it was quite astonishing news that was reported at a meeting um, in Vancouver. It's the longest known time that someone has, has gone without taking uh, the entra- antiretroviral drugs and without having a reoccurrence of um, you know, significant levels of, of the HIV virus in, in her body. And how long are we talking? You know, a few years, a few months? 12 years. Okay, so it's been 12 years and still no symptoms at all of the HIV virus? And not only there are no symptoms, but the virus hasn't rebounded and her levels of white blood cells are still good. Do we know why this is the case? Does this mean that people can come off the antiretrovirals and they'll Not be okay. at all. So all the, all the researchers interviewed by the reporter in this case were very clear. They, they said she is, a, she is the exception. We have a lot of kids that are infected at birth by the mother who has an HIV carrier, as in this case, who are treated for years and then they go off medication. There was a, a famous case, um, the, the so-called Mississippi child she uh, was almost HIV-free for two years without being on, on drugs from age two to age four, but then the virus came back. And even if this is an exception, it is a very scientifically interesting one. Do we know what's special about this teenage girl that might have enabled her body to fight off the disease without the use of drugs? I think that doctors wish they knew because, uh, of course, if there's anything interesting or, or peculiar about her genes or, or her body or her environment, we would like to know, of course, because other, there's millions of people who are on antiretroviral drugs, which are, it, it's a very heavy regimen of, of, of medication. 
and they would love, of course, to go off those drugs. It's a very heavy regimen of drugs, and the WHO has just actually advised that people get on that regimen of drugs earlier, isn't that right? As early as possible, in fact. It's been known now for a while that the earlier you go on the drugs after infection, the better, uh, both in terms of mortality and in terms of risk of transmission to other people. A lot of people until now have been taking, have been starting the regimen only after the, um, the their white blood cell uh, started going down and, and the HIV numbers started increasing. Uh, but it seems that it's much better to not wait and to start as soon as possible after infection. So in terms of transmission to a partner, transmission to a child, it's much better to start early. Fascinating developments uh, from HIV research there. And more good news comes in the form of research into alien life. The search for alien life has received quite a boost now, hasn't it, Davide? Yes, it's it's been um, a very welcome boost for the SETI effort, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence effort, which um, ironically, in recent years, the more planets we've discovered, the less money we've had to look for for alien life. So there are now something like a thousand planets known, and we have no idea if any of them is inhabited. But at the same time, the effort to um, to use radio telescopes to pick up any signals from um, distant uh, worlds has waned, and the money has really dried up until recently. And now with this injection of $100 million over 10 years, the SETI experts hope that this will give a real boost. It sounds like a huge amount of money, but what what are they actually spending it on? For the most part, it will go to uh, borrowing uh, observation time on radio telescopes. Um, they will be using the largest uh, steerable dish in the world, which is at Green Bank Telescope, the, the Green Bank Telescope in West Virginia, uh, which is 100 meters wide. It's a huge dish. And also the 64-meter uh, Parks Observatory, which is in Australia. And also they will be looking using an optical telescope. Will this allow completely new types of observation, or is it more just allowing much more in-depth searching for the kind of radio signals they're looking for? The money in part will pay for more sophisticated electronics to analyze the signals. Uh, Whereas earlier searches were looking only at a few channels or wavelengths, now uh, they will be able to look at 1.5 billion frequencies at the same time using using electronics and, and uh, heavy-duty computers. And what do we do if we find a signal, if we find something which just looks like it must be coming from alien life? Do they have a plan for that? Ah, so this is interesting. So this is something that I think is still in the works. It's, uh, it's, it's been very controversial, of course, how to react. Some people have said, well, if we find alien life, we should not try to contact them because who knows, maybe, you know, 50 years later, here comes the alien spaceship to invade us. What I found really interesting about this effort is that uh, all the data will be open, in part to avoid any conspiracy theories of, you know, governments covering up uh, the, the alien messages. The data will be made available to whoever wants to analyze it. So in that case, anyone with a big enough radio transmitter could in theory, send a radio message to wherever we discovered anything. Yes, although, of course, it would take a very large, uh, a lot of electricity and a very large uh, antenna to to make 
your signal heard. Okay, so I'd better start saving up my money then. Yes. Thank you very much, Davide, for joining us this week. My pleasure. That's all for this week. Next time, tiny little organs in dishes and what scientists are using them for. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Adam Levy. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.